On January 8th, supporters of Jair Bolsonaro, the former Brazilian president who lost in October to Lula da Silva, stormed Brazil's Congress, Supreme Court, and presidential offices. I would say Brazil is very much like the United States here. Or maybe it's yeah. the United States is very much like Brazil. Brazil is, at the moment, is a cautionary tale for the United States as it moves towards 2024. Now, the difference between the United States and Brazil is the U.S. has this crazy system that's decentralized in an electoral college. In Brazil, it's direct elections. Everybody votes electronically on the same equipment everywhere in the country simultaneously. So the Brazilians know within a few hours after the polls close, who wins the total vote. Um, Wait, voting is mandatory in Brazil? Mandatory. There is a fine, although it is a small fine for not voting. And so part of Bolsonaro's political appeal, and this is similar to, say, Trump in the United States, is to specifically appeal to evangelical Protestants, to their pastors, to their churches, to mobilize around what we would think of as traditional conservative politics, anti-abortion, anti-gay, very traditional social mores, right? I would argue that what's happening in the United States since the 1960s is we're becoming Brazilianized in our race relations. We know that racial prejudice discrimination exists in the United States today, but legally it's ended. And so the question becomes more difficult is how do you root out that kind of informal day-to-day prejudice and discrimination, right? And that's Brazil. And so what you get is large numbers of people living on the most precarious land in a place like Rio. And in Rio, that's on the hillsides. And it's ironic, right? It, I always like to say it's the opposite of Los Angeles. Exactly. The hills are for the rich people, right? The hills are for the rich people and the poor people live on the flatland. Exactly. Here's, here's a sense of scale. There are a couple of hundred million Brazilians at this point. 40 million Brazilians rise into the middle class during this period. 40 million. Wow. Now, that's bigger than the population of Argentina or Colombia, right? And so it is a huge economic surge, right? And then what happens is over the last decade is largely been economic stagnation. Did you know that from the 1870s to the 1970s, the two countries in the world that had the highest economic growth rates were Brazil and Japan? The problem with Brazil's century of dramatic economic growth was that it was episodic and not sustained. And this economic instability, this cycle of booms and busts, caused political challenges that toppled Brazil's democratic governments and military dictatorships. Hey there, news peelers. Today is February 3, 2023. And this is Adele, the host of the History Behind News podcast. Aren't you tired of the repetitive news on TV and social media? They just go over the same dramatized developments all day long. Do you ever wonder what happened before our news? I mean, how do we get here? For example, what's the history of the GOP or the Democratic Party? What are our environmental, economic, scientific, and cultural histories? And how about the history of past wars, like between Ukraine and Russia? Or the history of women's rights and revolutions, like in Iran? And of course, there's China's long history. They say if you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat it. So while others cover the news, I uncover its history. I call this peeling the history behind news, which we accomplish in weekly conversations with distinguished scholars who delve deep into history to give us their fascinating perspectives from our past. 
I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars, enjoyable and accessible to everyone. After all, why shouldn't we expect intelligent entertainment? So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink and let's get into it. Brazil's January 8th insurrection occurred two years and two days after our own January 6th attack on Capitol Hill. So my original intention in producing this episode was to draw comparisons between these two disruptive and destabilizing events. Of course, comparisons in their historical context. What happened instead? <laughs> the sort of thing that happens when I speak to superb historians with decades of experience in their fields is that I learned a lot more. The sort of things that I had not anticipated. For example, as you probably noted in the opening trailer to this episode, while Brazil doesn't necessarily have discriminatory laws on its books, informal discrimination persists among its people and is pervasive in its culture. So the obvious question is, while we, by we I mean us Americans, no longer have discriminatory laws on our books, at least ostensibly so, will an informal kind of discrimination persist among our people and become pervasive in our culture? What I also learned is that, similar to our own country, religion is widening the political divide in Brazil, with the same sort of issues that are cultural lightning rods here, such as abortion, LGBTQ rights, and education. I think learning about Brazil is important and instructive, not just because of the similarities between our two countries, but also because Brazil and the US are the two most populous democracies in the Western Hemisphere. And along with India, they're among the top five most populous democracies in the world. So, to better understand Brazil's history and compare it to ours, I spoke with Dr. Marshall Eakin, a distinguished professor of history at Vanderbilt University. Dr. Eakin is the recipient of two Fulbright Hayes Fellowships and grants from the Tinker Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the British Library, the Tennessee Humanities Council, and the Corporation for National Service. He has also been the recipient of numerous teaching and advising awards. Dr. Eakin is a historian of Latin America specializing in the history of Brazil. Although his work spans all of Brazilian history, his major publications have concentrated on the processes of nationalism and nation-building, economic and business history, and industrialization, primarily in the 20th century. He has authored many books on Brazil in this episode, we discuss two of them. The first is Becoming Brazilians, Race and National Identity in 20th Century Brazil. And the second one is Tropical Capitalism, the Industrialization of Belo Horizonte, Brazil. To learn more about Dr. Eakin, you can visit his academic homepage, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode, where I've also provided Amazon links to his two books. So, Stay with me as Dr. Eakin and I peel the history behind this news. Dr. Eakin, it is a pleasure to have you on our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. I was mulling over where to start my conversation with you, how to get into this history, and then I thought of... Uh, Brazil's huge population, 217 million people, which makes Brazil the seventh most populous country. And from what I can tell, 
it's a mixed bag of different peoples. You know, it has indigenous people, centuries of European migration, and also the importation of close to three million slaves. So from a distance, from afar, the Brazilian mix of peoples almost looks like our own country's mix of peoples. That's why I think the best place to start talking about Brazil's history is to just simply ask you, who are Brazilians? Well, it is, I would say, the history of all of the Americas in some ways is very similar. A period of conquest, colonization, and what I would call a collision of three peoples. There are native peoples who are here. There are Europeans who come over and conquer. And then they bring in millions of Africans as slaves. And so this is true all over the Americas, but in different variations. So if you look at the United States, those collisions take place. But that collision between Africans and Europeans is largely what today is the U.S. South, which makes the U.S. South in many ways like the Caribbean or like Brazil. Yeah. That kind of collision in Mexico or Central America, the Andes, is very much a collision between native peoples and Europeans. And so Brazil, what defines Brazil for most Brazilians is this collision, this mixing of peoples and cultures, especially peoples and cultures of Africa and Europe. Um, is, so collision, is collision a word that you're using, Dr. Eakin, or is that also a term that is used by Brazilian his, historians or in Brazil's language? I would say that. People use this other than me, but it, uh, I very much emphasize it. So I okay. think what most Brazilians would say, this is a sort of intermixing, right? Mm -hmm. But what that tends to leave out, I would say, is what is the sort of more shocking part. Because part of this is a collision, right? Forcibly. Yeah. Peoples, right. This yeah. conquest of native peoples, the forced importation of millions of Africans. Um, and so in that sense, it is a, it is a more dramatic term that I think expresses the sort of not only what might be the sort of normal intermixing of peoples over time, but in particular, this is a, a process of conquest and forced colonization. I like that. So collision is a term that almost sits in contrast to the quote unquote normal mixing of peoples. Yeah. And I would say this: there's a lot of debate over this in 1992, when we get to the 500th anniversary of Columbus, what do you call this? This is a discovery. And, and a lot of people come, oh, we'll call it encounters. <laughs> like, well, that's a nice neutral term, but like, I don't think these guys were going, okay, well, oh, let's have an encounter with yeah. these. I don't think uh, Native Americans saw it that way. Um, you wrote a book in 2017. It is titled Becoming Brazilians, Race and National Identity in 20th century Brazil. So in 20th century and fast forward into 21st century, what is the mix of Brazilians? Is it like the US, Asians, African-Americans? I guess they're not African-Americans, African. -American, African mm -hmm. Go ahead, please. You get, you get the gist of my question. Yeah, well, I would say this is, what you have are native peoples, a small number of Portuguese and a few other Europeans are, are taking part in this process for about 300 years. because. Brazil is closed off, at least in theory, to most other European peoples until independence in the early 19th century. So that collision in some places, especially in the interior, if you go to a place like the Amazon today, that collision, that mixing is largely between native peoples and Europeans. But along the northeast coast of Brazil, which was the sugar plantation region, and the southeast of Brazil because of gold and coffee, right, that is largely a mixing of Africans and, and Portuguese. What is it? 
similar to the United States, is in the late 19th century and the early 20th century, several million other Europeans come into Brazil, largely in the South and Southeast, especially Sao Paulo and South. So in that sense, it's part of that great wave of Europeans that come across the Atlantic, but primarily to the Northeast of the United States. that tremendously alters the demography of the United States from places like Boston down to Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah. So that's similar to Brazil's South and Southeast in the late 19th century. Okay. And so if you look at Southern Brazil, Sao Paulo down, it's a very phenotypically European population. Still? Still. Uh If you look at the the Southeast around Rio and Minas Gerais, which is just to the North, or if you look at the Northeastern coast, that mix is largely a mix of Africans and Europeans. So it's a darker, phenotypically darker population. Um, So this would be more like looking at Mississippi or the Southeast of the United States, right? But then what happens is, is... Several million Japanese come into Brazil between 1908 and the Second World War. Oh, wow. Okay. And they primarily come into Brazil, into the state of Sao Paulo, into the great coffee economy. So Brazil has the largest population of Japanese descendants outside of Japan. And so this is a, and this would be like the West Coast of the United States, right? So if you go yeah. to Los Angeles, for example, right, there's this Japanese immigration. Um and more recently, right across the 20th century, there is a smaller but significant flow of people coming out of the Middle East, especially in the early 20th century, out of the collapsing Ottoman Empire. So they come largely from what today is Syria and Lebanon. And these people come into Brazil and are all over the place. But again, they're very important, especially around this, the city and state of Sao Paulo. Three questions from what you just shared with me. First is, what is the composition, the makeup of the mix of people in Brasilia, the capital of Brazil? Brazil is very diverse because it's be like Washington, D.C. Oh, so Brasilia. Okay. Yeah, so, so what you're seeing in Brasilia is a place that's sort of artificially constructed as this capital. I and see. Then it ha- it's also unusual because it, because it is constructed in the late 50s and early 60s. So it's new. Very new. It's inaugurated in 1960, and so what they do is they make it impossible to construct, um, shall we say, slums in the municipality. So unlike any other Brazilian city or any major Latin American city, the poor people are pushed outside of the city. Um, oh, wow. And they it's inhabited by lots of people who are in government, international diplomats, and so Brasilia actually has the highest per capita income of any city in Brazil. So it's an unusual place, very unusual urban center for Latin America. And, and that's a topic that we're going to talk about. It may actually relate to the January 8th insurrection. We'll come back to that. Uh, I find it very interesting. And what you were sharing with me, you said large Japanese immigration to Brazil from 1908 to World War II you didn't say Chinese. Did they? Do they not? Okay, go ahead, please. There's a very there's an effort to bring in, and this is driven by labor demands. Uh huh. In the 19th century and the early 20th century, the great demand for labor in Brazil is to work on coffee plantations, largely in the southeast, what is today Sao Paulo and the states of Minas Gerais. Mm-hmm. And they try to bring in Chinese, and it never gets off the ground. They're more successful after 1908 to bring in Japanese. Uh, and it's a lot like California. They all go into agricultural labor. And as soon as they make money, they move to the city. 
<laughs> they didn't have any sort of uh, internment issues that we had, obviously, in World War no. II. No, yeah. No. Um, you say they bring in, so Brazil's government, volitionally, if you will, recruited uh, populations from Asia. In this right. there's, case, a, there's, a, there's an official um, arrangement with the government of Japan, right? And they're very, the government of Japan has seen what's happened with them trying to import Chinese workers. And they're very concerned about what are the working conditions going to be if we bring people in. Uh, in many ways, the European immigration, a large part of that is also driven by the same thing. The state of Sao Paulo, the state, not the central government of Brazil, is driven by the labor demand issues and coffee planters who are bringing in on contract workers from primarily Italy, Spain, and Portugal. So a lot of that is driven by planters trying to bring in labor because they've abolished slavery in 1888. Yeah, yeah. And slave trade had ended in 1850. So as they make a transition from slavery to free wage labor, they need more and more workers and they can't bring in any more slaves. So they're trying to bring in workers from what they would really like is Northern Europeans. <laughs> oh, but that doesn't happen. There, so. is a, there is a racial issue to it. They won't yeah. white um, and there's a big debate over the Japanese. How do we classify them? Do we really want people who are Asian? Um, so there's a racial component to this as well. As a point of clarification, not something that uh, I, I want to get into too deep. Um, you stated that for a long time, Brazil was closed off to other Europeans, which I assume that because it's it was a Portuguese colony. Um, was that a policy or was that just the way things worked. Uh, what do you mean by closed off? No, it's policy. I mean, basically, Spain's the same way, right? That mm -hmm. once they create these empires, they want to control everything that goes in and out. They, they would like to, right? They want to control everything that goes out of the empire, especially controlling trade, right? Because they want what they produce in Brazil or what Spain's producing in Mexico to come back to, to Iberia. And so outside merchants, outside people who are yeah. not, not Catholic, are not are legally not allowed into the empire, and so there I are see. smuggling that goes on. Right, uh, there is that kind of thing, but but in particularly for business purposes, right, it's not until the Portuguese royal family goes to Brazil in 1888, fleeing Napoleon, uh -huh. Brazil's opened to commerce with the rest of the world. By the way, that uh, the story of the Portuguese family going to uh, Brazil, the only royal. European royal family, dude. That itself is a fascinating story. Maybe we'll talk about it in a different podcast. Um, let's go back to the title of your book, uh, your 2017 book. The title is, I'll repeat it here, Becoming Brazilians. What do you mean by that? Becoming Brazilians. That's well, that's an interesting choice of words there. Any country that wants to become an independent nation has to construct a sense of what it means to be from there. Uh, this is one of the great challenges of the modern period, right? Yeah. Um, there is no United States. There's a revolution, and you have to create a country. And part of creating that country is creating the institutions and the laws and the rest. But that's what I would call the state apparatus, right? But how do you get people to believe that they're part of a community, right? To buy into that story. Yeah, and this is so you have to create a sort of narrative of who you are, and then somehow you have to persuade large numbers of people that they are part of that story. Uh, and so all nations have to do this. Um, and so it, after the independence of all these countries in the early 19th century, right, 
you have to create what it means to be Peruvian or Mexican or Cuban or Brazilian. Um, and there's, it's top down in many ways and that the government is trying to construct a story, but it's also bottom up in the, especially in a place like Brazil, those things that are part of the story in Brazil's case, mostly are from the people, right? So the things that people see that they have in common with each other are generally what I would call myths, rituals, and beliefs. What sort of things do you connect with? And if this is a story that's constantly changing. We can see this in the United States right now, these culture wars over what do you teach in school? Yeah, ultimately, yeah. ultimately is the story of which story do we teach? Whose story and who's in it? Is 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 that sort of, I don't know what you call it, woke or whatever you call it. Um, well, let's not even call it woke, but that's sort of revisiting our past. Is that happening in Brazil too? It's always happening. I would say it's happening in, in, in most countries all the time, right? This is why there is, there are always contending stories about who we are. Uh, and at certain times, one of those narratives may be dominant. So, and those narratives are constantly changing, right? Because I would say the story in the United States, right? What we like to believe is our sort of central national myth is that all people should be free to do what they want as long as they don't infringe on others' rights or harm anyone else, and that everyone should be treated equally. That is a sort of civic creed. And what yeah. we would like to believe is that anybody, no matter where they come from, no matter what they look like, no matter what their religion, can be part of that community and believe in those things. And so part of the debate in the United States right now, if you believe in a white nationalism, lots of people are excluded from that story. Right? Of course, yeah. Um, and so um, Brazil is the same way. Brazil had the sort of central story that emerges in Brazil in the 1920s and 1930s and is dominant for the 20th century is the belief that what makes Brazilians Brazilians is we're all just racially and culturally mixed, right? And that all these things we see around us, soccer, carnival, right? the way we eat, the way we speak, the kinds of foods we consume reflect this mixing, especially of cultures, especially of Africa and of Europe. And to that sounds very positive. It is a very positive story, right? And from the point of, from the 1930s on, every governor of Brazil, regardless of its political ideology, pushes this story, right? Um, but what comes to be associated with is a second step that, oh, if we, in fact, all mix together, therefore, there is no race prejudice or discrimination in Brazil. So is there race prejudice in Brazil? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but this, from the official government point of view, this becomes, it's like there, we are a racial democracy. In the 1950s, UNESCO actually funded sophisticated surveys in Brazil because they thought, how we're going to show the world, how is it this country manages to get by without racial discrimination and prejudice. And of course, all the sophisticated sociologists who did this said, in fact, this is not true. And all Brazilians understand this, especially as you go down the social scale, there's plenty of prejudice and discrimination. What's unlike the United States or a place like South Africa, there's very little legal structure ever in Brazil that separates or discriminates. So that what exists in Brazil is a sort of informal discrimination, right? The people understand this goes on, but there's no sort of, okay, only certain kinds of people here, only certain kinds of people here by law. There's no Jim Crow. There's no apartheid. And so Brazilians will look at this and say, we don't have a history of legally discriminating. So what I would argue that what's happening in the United States since the 1960s is we're becoming Brazilianized in our race relations. 
we know that racial prejudice discrimination exists in the United States today, but legally it's ended. And so the question becomes more difficult is how do you root out that kind of informal day-to-day prejudice and discrimination, right? And that's Brazil. So a black Brazilian, based on what you're saying, is unlikely to attain high status in the business world or political world and academia, perhaps, uh, because the color of his or her skin. Yeah, well, here's the here's a sort of vast overgeneralization about Brazil. What happens in the United States and in Brazil, they're both the largest slave societies in the Americas. Eventually, in the, in the early 19th century, the slave society of the United States becomes even larger than Brazil. Right? Racial mixing, whether through coercion or consent, is taking place in both societies. People of different shades of color take shape. In the United States, between roughly 1800 and the First World War, our society becomes increasingly rigid and bipolar. Part of this is after the Civil War, once you end slavery, right? You have to find some way to contain the African-American population who are no longer enslaved. So you develop these kinds of biases that are bipolar. You're either white or you're black. All you have to do is look around. That's not true. There are people of all shades of skin. Yeah, yeah. We develop a bipolar system whereby the First World War, you're either white or you're black, and there's no in between. What happens in Brazil is this never develops, right? What happens is there's an incredible sense of all shades of skin and discrimination and prejudice exist, but it varies, right? Depending on what the tone of your skin is, what in the US African-American community, we call colorism, right? Oh, wow. And so that's in, fascinating. In the, United, in the United States, we have these categories on the census that are called race. In Brazil, this categories on the census say color. So what you generally choose, and it is an option that's self-identified in Brazil, you're either black, white, indigenous, or mixed. About 45 to 47% of Brazilians choose mixed. Now that could mean any skin color, yeah. mean any kind of racial mixing. Only about six or 7% of Brazilians claim to be black, right? So that means- Whoa, that is so like, interesting. This means that slightly over half of the Brazilian population self-identifies as not being white. In the United States, we have had traditionally what's called the one, one drop rule, right? If you have any black ancestors, you're black. This is nuts, right? Yeah. Halle Berry is black. Tiger Woods is black. Why? If they have parents who are from different races, why are they only black? It's an American decision, right? In Brazil, most people aren't considered black unless they have no white ancestors at all. So if you have any kind of white ancestry, you're not black. You're some kind of mixture. That is really so, interesting. And it is like the United States. It's race and class operating. So the darker you are in Brazil, the more likely you're going to have trouble moving up the social scale. But as the Brazilians say, money whitens. Right? <laughs> so the more yeah. money you have, the better your education, the way you dress. People will treat you differently, even if you have darker colored skin. But every kind of survey in Brazil shows that, by and large, what happens is the darker the color of your skin, the tougher it is to move up the social pyramid. The farther down the pyramid you're likely to be. Um, and so when you look at Brazil today, which is this incredible racial mixture, more so than the United States, the elite, both socially and economically, 
and also the political elite are heavily lighter skinned, which is stunning for a country where over half the population is not white. Yeah. Dr. Eakin, uh, let's take a break here. We'll be back after a short break to talk about Brazil's economy and the rule of law and favelas. Back in September 2022, Chileans voted against ratifying the constitution, the writing of which they had overwhelmingly approved initially. Chile's is a history of highly polarized politics, and similar to Brazil, Chile fell in and out of democracy through its economic booms and busts. And similar to Brazil, Chile's modern history holds many lessons for us here in the United States. To tell that history, I spoke with Dr. Claudia Fuentes of the Diego Portales University in Chile. The link to my conversation with him in Season 2, Episode 38 is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Dr. Eakin about the history of Brazil. Dr. Eakin, to understand Brazil and its current political challenges, um, I think we also have to talk about its economic challenges, corruption, and class conflicts. You actually alluded to it in the previous segment. So let's start with one of your books, Tropical Capitalism, the Industrialization of Belo Horizonte, Brazil. What is this book about? It's really about how this this what is one of the most important states in Brazil industrializes very late, really post-1945. Oh. I mean, if you look at Brazil, Brazil is a late industrializer, right? So the sort of first wave is Northwestern Europe, then the United States, then the late 19th century places like Germany, right? Yeah, yeah. And much of Latin America is a, are the, the countries that do industrialize significantly are late industrializers. In Brazil, it's the state and city of Sao Paulo where that industrialization primarily takes place. So that by the time you get to the mid 20th century, the state of Sao Paulo, and that largely means the metropolitan area, the city of Sao Paulo, is the dominant economic center of Brazil by far. Almost half of the GDP of Brazil in 1950 is being produced in one state. Oh, wow. For a country that large. That's amazing. It's an incredibly skewed industrialization. Partly this takes place in Rio first and then in Sao Paulo, but Sao Paulo becomes hugely dominant right um, geographically could you please sao, uh, place sao paulo for our audience is it close to the rio de janeiro is it in the south yeah so rio de janeiro is on the coast slightly above the tropic line right uh-huh. and sao paulo is slightly down the coast to the southwest just on the, the southern side of the how tropic. far are they apart they're about 200 miles apart oh so industrialization and this economic sort of powerhouse of the country is pretty much between these regions in the same focal area. Yeah, and so what you got is the great triangle of power in Brazil and a population since about 1750. You say triangle, what's the third point? It would be Rio, Sao Paulo, and to the north of them on their border is Minas Gerais, the general mines, right? Okay. Belo Horizonte is the planned capital of the state of Minas, which is built in the 1890s. It's kind of the model of what Brasilia is, right? That the, the state legislature gets in, we have to create a new capital. It's got to be centrally located. It needs to be in a good location to really unify the various parts of the state. And so Belo Horizonte is a city that didn't exist. It's built in the 1890s. It has no industry, right? And its population in, say, during the First World War is about 30,000 people. 
Today, it's a city of 5 million people in the metropolitan area. And it is the second or third industrial center in Brazil, depending on how you're doing the counting, right? Rio being the other one. And so Belo massively industrializes, and almost all of this is post-1940. And so what I'm looking at in the book is, what do they do in this state to produce this kind of industrial surge? And it's largely a sort of, what I would call a collection of elite families, right? Who are involved in politics and in business and in what I would call state entrepreneurs. They're running state controlled companies, right? Whether it's the electrical power company, the water companies, right? They create iron and steel companies. And so it's largely state directed industrialization with public money and with significant private, almost entirely foreign capital, right? German, Japanese, and American. And so what they construct is a massive industrial complex on the outskirts of the capital, Belo Horizonte, um, which includes auto plants, iron and steel factories, right? So it is a very impressive industrial surge that it only could have happened with this, what I would say, collaboration between foreign capital and these state elites, which are both political elites. Sometimes these people are actually our politicians. They're the governor, right? And other times they're the head of state-controlled companies, right? Uh, and Minas builds a hydroelectric power-generating complex, right, that provides the power to make this happen. And it also exports this energy to Sao Paulo and to Rio. So it's a, it's a state-led, and I mean state in the sense of one political unit, uh, state-led industrialization project. Uh, which is kind of different than at least parts of America's industrialization history, which is a long, much longer history, it doesn't happen in such a quick sort of spurt. Uh, there's a lot of private money involved, investments, the Vanderbilt's, the name of your your university. And yeah. um, as I understand it, in the first half of the 20th century, many believed that Brazil would become an economic superpower. Um, all the Brazil's economy grew. Uh, significantly by leaps and bounds, particularly in the 2000s, just you know, uh, 15, 17 years ago, the economic miracle of Brazil hasn't materialized yet to that extent that we thought it would. Why is that? Well, let me give you the good news and the bad news. Okay. <laughs> uh, the good news is if you look at Brazil, since the late 19th century, say for 100 years, from the 1870s up into the early up until the 1970s, there's only one country in the world that grows more, and that's Japan, which is in a category of its own. Wait, could you repeat that period again, please, right. for me? From a roughly, say, the 1870s to the 1970s, the two countries in the world that have the highest growth rates of their economies, right, are Japan, which is in a category of its own, and Brazil. Yeah. That's impressive. So, wow. So if you look at that and say in the bigger pictures, like historically, right, they really have grown dramatically, right? Yeah. The good news is, is that economic growth has been episodic, right, and not very sustained. So if you look at a more recent period, right, Brazil goes through a sort of industrialization spurt in the 30s and 40s, right, which is state-led. The government is largely behind this. And then in the early 1960s, right, there's a collapse, right, which is one of the reasons there's a military regime that steps in. And then under the military regime in the late 60s and early 70s, there's a massive state-led industrialization, right? Energy, nuclear power, 
all kinds of heavy industry. And so Brazil's great surge forward is in the late 60s, early 70s, under the military regime. Much of the sort of these massive projects, highway building, opening the Amazon, massive exploitation of natural resources. This really is late 60s and early 70s. And then Brazil goes into crisis again. Like most of Latin America in the 1980s, there's this massive debt crisis, right? Where the foreign funding is shut off, right? Argentino has gone through that several times, for example. Right. Yeah. And so Brazil kind of limps along in the 90s. And then there's this huge surge from about 2005 to about 2010 or 11, when Lula was president for the second Yeah, year. yeah. And this is largely driven by commodity demand in China. So, so especially in 2008, 9, 10, when much of the world, especially the United States, is in financial crisis, Brazil is booming, right? Soybeans, I remember, yeah. Iron, oil exports. Brazil booms under Lula in his second term. I was living in Rio in 2009 and 10 and moving back and forth to the United States. It was striking, right? You would come to the United States. There's this massive economic crisis and recession. <laughs> yeah. You fly back to Brazil. And this is a moment when here's, here's a sense of scale. There are a couple of hundred million Brazilians at this point. 40 million Brazilians rise into the middle class during this period. 40 million. Brazilians. Wow. Now, that's bigger than the population of Argentina or Colombia. And so it is a huge economic surge, right? And then what happens is over the last decade is largely been economic stagnation. So in our country, we have economic cycles. I mean, just look at how many crises we've had. We think economies are becoming better. I mean, we're not going to have another recession, but it keeps on happening. We just had one 10 years ago, right? The Great Recession. But the sense I get from your explanation of Brazil's economy is not really economic booms and busts. It has a different flavor to it. Is is politics involved? I'm trying to pinpoint that difference. Well, politics is always involved, including the United States. Yeah, it is. Part of, part of this <laughs> is that yeah. it, it's a capitalist economy that's heavily socialized. But like all capitalist economies, they periodically go through these business cycles and sometimes massively shocking business cycles like 2008 and nine, for example. Um the criticism of Brazil's economy by most people, right, especially by people who are more what we would call in the United States conservative economists, right, uh, what the Brazilians would call liberal economists. <laughs> liberal um, economists, okay. Right, because it goes back to classical economic liberalism, right, open markets, less government, less regulation, right? And this is the criticism of Brazil is that it is still too heavily regulated, right? So that if you look at Brazil, most most people who want to do business in Brazil, they talk about what's called the Brazil cost. That whatever they do, in the Brazil, Brazil cost, the Brazil cost. Okay, right? that it's going to cost maybe another five percent because you're going to have to go through the red tape, the all the processes, some corruption, and so doing business in Brazil has costs that you wouldn't have, say, for example, in Chile, right? There has become such a tremendous, a more open economy than the United States, right? That may be enough reason not to open a business in Brazil, right? This is what discourages people, right? I, yeah. We've gone down to Brazil with groups from our business school several times, and they've sat through these little seminars with sort of people who are in business law, and they said, okay, if you want to set up a business, here's what you're looking at. And a lot of this has to do with labor legislation, social security legislation. Part of it is just Brazil is more, shall we say, legally complicated. There's Roman law system in the United States. 
but what you're looking at here is that the people who want to do business in Brazil complain about it being too heavily regulated and too many legal obstacles. I see. Uh, and so, again, the, the contrast to be a place like Chile, which under Pinochet in the 70s and 80s, jumps off in the deep end of the pool, right? And says, let's just remove all barriers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so business will go like, oh, I love Chile because there's just almost no barriers, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so Brazil, here's one, here's one for you. So under the conservative anti-communist generals who ran Brazil in the 1970s and 1980s, uh-huh. Brazil became probably the most socialized economy in the world, uh, in the free market world. Under the conservative generals, I Under love it. <laughs> yeah. Because they understood if they're going to be a strong nation, they have to have a strong economy. And that was not just going to happen through the free market. So much there were more than 200 state-controlled corporations in Brazil by the 1980s. Oil, energy, nuclear, iron and steel, go down the list, right? And so much of the 1990s and early 2000s was privatizing many of these state-controlled corporations. Probably the most dramatic example of this is Embraer, which yeah. is an aircraft company created by the government, privatizes, and today is the third largest aircraft company in the world, right? Yeah, um, yeah. So some of the privatization um, works. In some cases, the companies are are not viable uh, and eventually broken up in, into pieces by private companies. I want to go back to something you said earlier. You, we were talking about uh, the miracle industrialization of the Sao Paulo state, and uh, much of it was included the involvement of a collection of elite families, whether they were in business or politics. And as you said that, that made me think think of the corruption scandal of Petrobras that happened, and it implicated uh, uh, Michel Temer, president of uh, Brazil. Who is of that... Syrian Lebanese descent. Oh, okay. Well, interesting. There it goes to their mix. So, a mix of people in Brazil. So, how widespread is corruption in in um, Brazil. I'm trying to get to sort of the gravity of the rule of law in that country. I would say when you look at these sort of things, Transparency International, these international organizations that rank corruption and that sort of stuff, Brazil's about in the middle, right? In the middle. So it's, not, okay. it's not an extreme sort of place, but it's certainly not Scandinavia, right? Um, <laughs> okay. It tends to be somewhere in about the middle uh, in terms of corruption, but it, it exists. And part of the problem in the Petrobras scandal, though, what's called the car wash scandal, right? Lava it was massive. It engulfed even several. Con- yeah, this is the scale. But part of this is built into the nature of Brazilian politics, right? The way in which Brazilian politics has always worked, and to some extent, this is true in the United States, especially at the local level, right? Access to political p- power gives you access to resources of the state, which you can then dole out to your constituents, right? This is not unlike a congressman getting a bridge or a school built in your district, right? And so tradition in Brazilian politics, this is operated, right? That you get access to political power, a ministry, a secretariat, and you have access to giving out benefits to your friends, right? The scale of the car wash scandal is something unheard of in Brazil before. And this is because Petrobras at that point was probably the fifth or sixth largest oil company in the world. Wow. Um, And so Petrobras was awash with billions of dollars of assets. And so every political party in Brazil was on the take on this, right? The PT, the Workers' Party, was in power. They're responsible, right? They were in power. Uh, But everybody was involved. 
and it involved a gigantic. That was the party of Lula da Silva. After yeah, Lula's political party. Yeah. Um, but in effect, what they were doing was channeling funds to people for their political votes in Congress, in particular, right? And again, this is part of the nature of the Brazilian political system. Even though it's a presidential system with a bicameral legislature like the United States, it looks like a parliamentary system because. There are a couple of dozen political parties. No one has anything close to a majority. So the only way you can pass things in the Brazilian Congress or Senate is forming coalitions. The way you form coalitions is you give people a reason to vote for you. We'll build this in your district. We'll do this for your state. Um, And so in order to keep this coalition together, they were channeling huge amounts of money to all sorts of people in Brazilian politics on a scale that was just unbelievable in the millions of dollars as opposed to handing out, you know, scholarships to go to the school or some political or some post office position. Yeah. Um, So it's not they don't have a strong established two party system. It's probably it's not like the United States. It's probably more like Israel, where you have many different uh, um, uh, parties that have to form coalition. That's really interesting. In the minute that we have left here, I wanted to go back to something that you talked about. You said uh, Brasilia, the capital of Brazil, is kind of like DC, but it's really interesting. It's a sort of a uh, special place in that there are no slums in the capital they push people out uh, and uh, so i want to talk to you about brazil's favelas mm-hmm. you even see them in cartoons like my daughter's cartoon they they watch and you see them on the hills how how widespread are there are we, talk, are we talking about like thousands of families millions tell us a little about this so in effect this is part the, the slums in brazil just like in most of Latin America, and you can extend this to much of the third world, Africa and Asia, right, is due to the massive migration of people out of the countryside into the cities that in Latin America is from like the 1940s up until about the end of the 20th century. So they're coming out of the farms or whatever rural Tens areas of millions of people to come for work. Into the cities. Uh, and it's in a very brief period of time, maybe 50 years at most, right? And so the cities are sort of overwhelmed by this massive immigration of people in, and the industrialization process in a place like Brazil is not fast enough to absorb this. And so what you get is large numbers of people living on the most precarious land in a place like Rio. And in Rio, that's on the hillsides. And it's ironic, right? It, I always like to say it's the opposite of Los Angeles. Exactly. The hills are for the rich people, right? The hills are for the rich people and the poor people live on the flatland. Exactly. In, in Traditionally in Latin America, until very recently, the rich people live near the center of the city, right? And so it's on the hillsides that are precarious where people build these shanty towns in a place like Rio. You mean precarious as in the land is precarious? It's, it's about to slide or something? It'll slide off. There is no, there's no building permits, no building code. This is all informal, spontaneous. But if there's no happened, building permits and no building code, so are there no infrastructure? There's no infrastructure. The only infrastructure is what you create. And so oh. up until <laughs> about the 1980s, especially under the military regime, we were saying somehow we have to remove these people. right? And finally, by the 1980s, you look around and say this is involves it's maybe a third of the population of Rio, which is a 10 million metropolitan area. Right. Same we're thing talking about Brazil. 3 million people now. Millions of people in hundreds of neighborhoods. Um, So what happens is in the 1980s, the government's finally recognized these people are not going to go away. So what they engage in is what's called urbanization. How do we somehow build schools, clinics, 
provide running water? Right? How do we pave the streets? Right? So today, the slums, the favelas in a place like Rio or Sao Paulo have been there for decades mm-hmm. and are permanent, right? Are brick and mortar. But again, they're all built informally, right? So this is why periodically when there's really heavy rains, especially in Rio, parts of these hillsides will wash away, right? And take people with them. Yeah. Because uh, they're often built upon the most precarious locations that are there. So it is a, a huge chunk of the Brazilian population. We'll be back after a short break to talk about Brazil's politics. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the History Behind News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you. Dr. Eakin, as I understand it, Brazil had a Republican government in the first half of the 20th century, but then it regressed into a military dictatorship, and then it became a democracy again. Take us through this history. This is interesting. You know, I would say Brazil, strangely enough, when people think about Latin America, actually has, since independence in the 1820s, some form of electoral politics and representative government. In the 19th century, that's mainly under this unusual thing where they have a monarchy, but they have a parliament, right? They have elections, but the elections are incredibly indirect and very few people participate. By the end of the 19th century, only about 1% of Brazilians are actually able to vote. 1%, wow. 1%. When the republic replaces the monarchy at the end of the 19th century, There are regular presidential elections, state-level elections, municipal elections. Probably by the 1920s, maybe 5% or 6% of the population is able to vote. Um, Then Brazil experiences a rare moment of authoritarian dictatorship from 37 to 45. This is very unusual. The military in Latin America in general is constantly intervening in politics and often running things. In Brazil, the military is not a factor in the 19th century until 1889. And the role of the military in Brazil for most of its modern history has been to serve as the sort of what I would call the arbiters of politics. You cannot stay in power or overthrow somebody without the assistance of the military, but they rarely, rarely are in power themselves. And so from 37 to 45, there is a dictator, the most important political figure in 20th century Brazil, Getulio Vargas. The military supports him. But in 1945, at the end of the Second World War, they basically say to him, it's time to move on. So he steps aside and Brazil returns to electoral politics. But it's electoral politics for the first time that is truly mass-based politics, right? Newspapers, radio, not really television yet, right? Yeah. Uh, but it's mass politics. And probably by 1960 or so, 20 or 25% of Brazilians are participating in voting in politics. So there's a long history, but limited voting and, and representation skewed. 
in the early 1960s, in the midst of the Cold War, in polarization between the Soviet Union and the United States, Latin America is a battleground, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and what happens in Brazil in 1964 is very similar. It's the first country in a wave that sweeps Latin America of military coups, right? So in April of 1964, the military step in with two objectives, to eliminate what they see as the leftist threat and an economy which is in free fall, right, to build a strong national economy. And so the generals basically say- Was there outside intervention in that? Was the CIA involved or any other? The CIA is right on top of this. We actually have a warship (laughs) offshore, but the Brazilian generals, just like the Chilean generals, are perfectly capable of doing this themselves. The U.S. is completely behind this, right, but doesn't need to step in. But with the generals in places like, if you look at Latin America, by 19, by October of 1973, almost every country in Latin America is under some form of authoritarian government and military rule. The exceptions are Mexico, which is a one-party state. Yeah. Uh, Cuba, which is based on authoritarian regime, but it's not the military that's running things. But the only real democracies left in Latin America by the end of 1973 are Colombia, Venezuela, and Costa Rica. So this is a wave that takes place in Latin America in the midst of the Cold War. Um, And the generals in many of these places say, a plague on all your houses, you politicians, whatever your stripe, we're going to show you how to do this. And so whether it's in Chile or Brazil, they say, we're going to build a strong national economy and we're going to eradicate this leftist threat. Well, by the 1980s, right, Brazil has entered into economic crisis once again. And there is no leftist threat left. The military basically forced to step back, right? and Brazil enters into what is. When you say forced to step back, is there sort of common national consensus, or yes. is there okay? Yeah, yeah. And in particular, those people who, those powerful elites who wanted to see the military in power, are basically saying, "We don't need you." <laughs> yeah, we got this. You're not. You're not. Really, yeah, yeah. Um, especially in Sao Paulo. Okay. Um, and so, what Brazil really enters to enters into in the late 1980s is truly mass politics universal vote male and female over the age of 18 it's mandatory 16 and 17 year olds can vote but it's not mandatory right um, wait voting is mandatory in brazil mandatory there is a fine although it is a small fine for not voting uh, and if you look at voting in brazil in the 1990s it's 85% of the population that's eligible votes. 85%. Oh, so is there like a third option? Let's say, um, you know, uh, Bolsonaro or Lula da Silva, and there's a third option of I abstain from choosing. Yes. Oh, there and is. Can, okay. As in many Latin American countries, you can submit what's called a null vote. A null vote. Null vote. I don't want any, either one of these or any of these guys. And political scientists who study Latin America, especially places like Brazil, are constantly studying what levels of participation in democracy. And one of the levels of dissatisfaction is how high is the null vote, right? This is something that doesn't really exist in the United States. You yeah. stay home, right? But one of these signs is not only abstention, but who shows up and says, I don't like any of these, right? How high is that percentage? It goes as high as 5% in some of the elections. Okay. And this is why... When the Brazil almost always has to go through two rounds of presidential elections because you have to get 50% plus one to win in the first round. Um, But it's 50% of the valid votes, not the null votes, excluding the votes that are not either null 
or invalidated, right? Because there's always ballots that are invalidated. We have this debate in the United States, right? Do you count yeah. these ballots or not, right? And so you have to eliminate the val the invalid votes and the null votes and say out of the rest of these, who has a majority? Is a large percentage of uh, Brazilian uh, votes uh, are they validated? Invalidated? There's always a small percent that are invalidated, right? Because but just, but there's there, there's there's some sort of problem with with them and they invalidate them, yeah. But no one thinks that elections are well. Let's put aside January eighth for a moment, but just generally speaking, in the world of modern democracies, they're fair elections. Yes. Yes. Um, just to, for my own clarification, when you talk about left in Brazil, you know, there's a lot of discussion of how uh, South America uh, is is leaning left now. We're basically talking about socialism, not no obviously no one's talking about communism. But when we talk about socialism, Dr. Eakin, is that like the Democratic Party generally, or is that more like Bernie Sanders' standards? It's to the left of Bernie Sanders. Oh wow. Okay. So that's say, really left. I mean, this is a hard thing for North Americans to grasp. Our political spectrum is like this. Right. We call left and right is like this. Most of the rest of the world are political yeah. spectrums like this. What what you mean is that you had your hands close From together. Left that means to right. Okay. So so Brazil is more like Europe, right? So just for me to uh, sort of uh, interpret what you just did for our audience, uh, when you talk about the U.S. and you had your hands up, what you mean is that our political spectrum compared to South America is relatively uh, sort Narrow. of narrow. Theirs is really wide. Oh wow. Yeah, so so, for, so there are there is a communist party in Brazil has very little influence, right? Uh, there are people uh, on the extremes, but it's a lot like Europe, right? Essentially, what people like Lula are are what Europe would be called social democrats. There are people who who are fully participating, running governments and the rest. But what they believe in is a more socialized economy, right? Than the people to the right, right? And this is why in the United States. Bernie Sanders is really the only person who's willing to say, you know, I'm a socialist, right? Yeah. In most European countries or in Brazil, plenty of people are socialists, right? And that's not, you know, an oddity. Um, and so in that sense, there is a broader political spectrum. So the left is much broader. The right is much broader than it is in the United States. Um, and so most of what we would think of as left in the United States would be slightly left of center in Brazil. So is polarization a term that is used in Brazil? Is that a is that is that an issue now? It has become more and more of an issue because traditionally in Brazilian politics, even though you had this widespread, right, people form coalitions, right? Uh-huh. So classic example is under President Cardozo, then under Lula, right? What you did is you got elected not just with the people in your political party, but by forming coalitions. And often these for the left, you take some part centrist parties, right? People are in the middle and you bond with them. So much like the United States, the left and the right are fighting over the middle. Mm -hmm. How do you get the middle or enough of the middle to go to your side, right? Yeah. And so there's this huge debate in U.S. politics for years of how do we get the moderates, right? Yeah. Well, U.S. politics, I would say, has changed. Now it's about how do you mobilize your base? Yeah. Um, yeah. So what is happening in Brazil, very much like the United States, since about 2012, 2013, is increasing political polarization where people are saying it's only one side or the other. You're on my side or you're not, right? And so in that sense, all these people who are seen as sort of in the middle 
are being forced to make a choice of which side you go to. Uh, and the result in the United States and in Brazil is you get elections that are very close, right? And only a few percent is going to tip the election one way or the other, right? Um, so in a place like Brazil, traditionally, right, whoever wins the first round of the elections generally has 40-something percent of the vote. So they have to go out and persuade another 5 or 6% of the population to vote with them. But I would say generally what's happened in those second rounds is the vote that that person gets, Lula is a good example of this, is between 55 and 60% of the vote in the second round. Right. When he won his first two elections, right, in the second round, you generally get somewhere above 55% of the vote. What happened this time is that election was about a percentage and a half difference, right? So it's very- That is so close. The 50-50. Yeah. Two million votes, right? 118 million people voted, and the difference was two million votes. Now, the difference between the United States and Brazil is the U.S. has this crazy system that's decentralized in an electoral college. So Al Gore, right, yeah. <laughs> or Hillary yeah. Clinton can win the, yeah. the popular vote and still lose the election. Yeah. In Brazil, it's direct elections. Everybody votes electronically on the same equipment everywhere in the country simultaneously. So the Brazilians know within a few hours after the polls close who wins. The total vote, right? There's no no hanging chads, no waiting till the next day. Yeah. So the if you're going to charge irregularities, it's sort of like what Trump and these guys have tried to do. You attack the voting machines that are being used. Uh, and so Bolsonaro, for example, wanted- and the voting machines are the same in the country, not di- di- across the country. Different states don't have different voting. Everywhere machines. is the same. So you're using um, the same software, the same technology. So. For people who want to, uh, shall we say, impugn the system, you have to somehow show that there's something been done to the technology, right? Uh, because it's the same everywhere. So it's not you're going to challenge this has happened in one little place because of the way they voted or some other place. It's the entire system is exactly the same regardless of where you are. Dr. Eakin, in the minute we have left of this segment, I, I just want to know about populism in Brazil. Uh, in our own country, we can trace populism back certainly to president jackson in the 1830s um, actually as early as 1828 when he ran first some people even take it back to president jefferson um, although it wasn't called populism back then obviously is there such a thing i mean we see populism what we here think of populism in 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 brazil um do they first do they use that term is yep. there okay does it have a long history long roots in brazil for most people who study Latin America, Brazil specifically, they date this from the 1920s and 1930s. I see. And it's parallel to what you see in the United States during that same period, right? Father Coughlin, the rise of Huey Long. Uh-huh. And no one can agree on what the definition of this is, <laughs> including the United <laughs> States, right? Yeah. But somehow it's the effort to mobilize large numbers of people, especially in the lower levels of society, around issues of economic injustice, right? anger at the powerful, the wealthy, the rich, right? And in a place like Latin America, it's always associated with charismatic political leaders, right? So this really begins in the 30s and 40s and takes off. So that period of mass politics between 45 and 64 in Brazil is dominated by charismatic political figures, right? Appealing to the masses, right? It's really the first time in Brazil you have to have large numbers of votes, right? 
of ordinary people, right? And so that kind of populism is generally associated with mobilizing the masses, especially around economic issues and especially anger at foreigners, right, who are exploiting us. Yeah, yeah. And the wealthy and the rich. Um, and so in this sense, the populism that's resurfaced in Latin America, and especially places like Brazil, sort of in the last couple of decades, for political scientists, well, this is sort of a new version of this, right? Um, and it's less now about pointing at the outsiders and more at who are powerful within the country. It's no longer the British or the Americans that are somehow doing this to us. It's these really powerful people the elite. around the economy and the political system. Yeah. Let's take a break here. Stay with me and Dr. Eakin as we get into the perspective. The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast. Dr. Eakin, last year's re-election of Lula da Silva, Brazil's president, comes with sort of bittersweet history and a bit of an irony. And bitter because of this January 8th attack on government buildings in Brasilia, their capital, and also sweet and ironic because Lula da Silva's first election in 2002 was a peaceful transition from his opposition to Cardozo's uh, presidency. Uh, and it was widely sort of recognized as proof that Brazil has achieved political stability. But then we had January 8th. So is Brazil regressing? I would say Brazil is very much like the United States here. Or maybe it's yeah. the United States is very much like Brazil. Um, and I, Brazil is, at the moment, is a cautionary tale for the United States as it moves towards 2024. Oh. Um the same sort of forces that are threatening to rip apart Brazil are the same sort of forces in the United States, right? To get back to the imagined community and creating Brazilians, right? Mm -hmm. You persuaded all these people that they have something in common. They share the same holidays, the same kind of music, the same- Like Thanksgiving. All these sort of things, right? Yeah. That they belong. And part of being successful at that is trying to convince as many people as possible they're part of this, right? Mm -hmm. Um. But what holds the fabric of the country together, the nation, quite literally, this community, is a sense of many, many people belonging. What's happening in both these countries now is saying who belongs is not as many as you thought, right? Uh, and in Brazil, specifically, right, to get back to the sense of identity, yeah, Bolsonaro and the much more conservative right-wing people in Brazil will say all of these people who are indigenous are standing in the way. All of these dark-skinned poor people who refuse to work and want to live off the government, they're in the way. Right? Is that implicit in their... Explicit. Uh, explicit. Explicit. I mean, we talk about how Trump oh, wow. outrageous things in the United States. Uh -huh. I mean, Bolsonaro's got quote after quote after quote about, you know, the unworthiness, the the... the, the all kinds of derogatory comments about indigenous peoples, all these sorts of people who are poor, but it's always directed people who are poor who refuse to work. So if you're poor and you work, you're not one of those, right? Yeah. But it's invoking class differences, right? It's invoking racial differences. It's invoking religious differences because one of the things we haven't talked about, but Brazil over the last 50 years has become increasingly 
divided in religion, right? Here's a place that was nominally. I thought Brazil was Catholic through and through. Nominally Catholic, right, for centuries, right? Yeah. Within another decade or so, the number of people who identify as Protestants in Brazil today, and this means evangelical Protestants, right? Yeah. Uh, is about 30%. And that number is growing. That's huge. So this is a watershed moment in Brazil over the last few decades of a cultural division that did not exist for a very long time. And so part of Bolsonaro's political appeal, and this is similar to say Trump in the United States, is to specifically appeal to evangelical Protestants, to their pastors, to their churches, to mobilize around what we would think of as traditional conservative politics, anti-abortion, anti-gay, um, very traditional social mores, right? And so religion now becomes a division within Brazilian society that didn't exist 50 years ago. Uh, part of this is geographic. When you look at the vote totals in the United States, there's this sort of rural-urban split. Yeah. In Brazil, roughly the northern half of the country votes voted for Lula, and the southern half voted for Bolsonaro. So the southern half being the industrial yeah. uh, part, the economic a, uh, focal point. Yeah. And there's a conscious invocation, especially by Bolsonaro, one of the worst types of prejudice in Brazil is against people who are from the Northeast, right? Millions of these people. Is that Bahia region? Bahia, Recife, yeah. the Northeast. They Millions of these people migrated, right, into the cities of the South, especially Sao Paulo, beginning in the 40s and 50s. These are the people who built Sao Paulo. But there's a strong prejudice. It's very similar to what I'd say, thinking of what Americans don't think of dumb Southerners or people from hillbillies, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. That they're less educated, they speak funny, that they don't work very hard, they're lazy. And Bolsonaro consciously invokes this, right? And says it openly, right? And so there is, so much like the United States, you're you're increasingly using divisive politics, right? What you want to do is drive wedges between people and mobilize your base, right? Whatever you think that is, right? And so it's become less about mobilize, trying to Unify, yeah. And more about how do we divide people and get just enough on our side. So this is why you look at these elections in the United States and Brazil, it's becoming increasingly, where's the compromise? We talk about this in the United States. Where's bipartisan legislation, right? Uh, if, in fact, it's an either-or world, right, you're on one side or the other. So this is why I say Brazil is very much like what's happening in the United States. And if you look at the Brazilian election, there was a lot of concern especially because of what happened in the United States, right, that Bolsonaro was not going to recognize the outcome of the elections if he lost. Fortunately for Brazilians, right, almost all the people around him who had some sort of power capitulated and said, no, the election's over. Bolsonaro has never conceded the election. Yeah. And in fact, when he finally got up and spoke after a few days and gave a press conference, he basically says, well, I'm telling my chief of staff to cooperate with the transition. He never conceded. Right. And so people took a deep breath and said, okay, we've actually made it through the process, right? And then the January 8th thing, which is consciously modeled on January 6th, the United States, yeah. was an effort by people who refused to recognize the outcome of the elections. Was there anything special about January 8th? Like January 6th was a day <clears throat> that all of Congress had to meet to certify the election results in the United States. Was January 8th sort of an equivalent of that or was just a random day? No, it's like there was a lot of people worried this was going to happen on January 1st, which was the inauguration. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
it appears to me, right, that what they were banking on here is this was a Sunday, right? And it's pretty clear there was collusion with some of the security forces in Brasilia to sort of step back, right? Not mobilize. Um, and so they bust in thousands of people, right? Yeah. Literally to do this. Uh, but it is unusual, right? That Brasilia is often the focal point of mass demonstrations because of the Congress in the 1980s, thousands of people massed around the Congress when it had a big vote on whether they were going to reestablish direct presidential elections. This happens on a regular basis. What was unusual here is it was clear that the security forces were unprepared. And part of the reason they were unprepared is because they didn't want to be out there stopping this. Interesting. So part, of, part of what Lula's had to do is fire large numbers of people who were involved in security around Brazil, including the military. Yeah, rightfully so. Um, if you wanted our audience to remember just one point after everything we've talked about, about Brazil, what would it be? I would say, to get back to the thing about becoming Brazilians, that what makes Brazil Brazil and what makes it so interesting is this incredible cultural mix uh, that takes place. And what makes Brazil fascinating to me, what drew me to Brazil in the first place, this is an incredibly creative, large country, right? And you see this, whether it's in their music, whether it's in the way they play soccer, right? Whether it's in the kind of food they eat, this is an incredibly diverse and complex and rich culture. Uh, and this gets back to our political point. And part of what I fear about Brazil today is that this incredibly diverse and rich culture is being polarized, right? By the kind of politics that's not just in Brazil today, but in many parts of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, we should look at Brazil over the next year or so and say, is this telling us something about what we might be seeing in another year or two in the United States? Yeah, surely there are lessons for us. And Brazil, by the way, is not, is, is in my family's bucket list. So we'll see. Hopefully everything will be fine when we go. get to visit. Definitely. Dr. Eakin, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us. What's your perspective? Thank you so very much, Dr. Eakin. Thank you. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit, to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past. Rather, is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. 
And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news.